Today we're talking with Renee Cummings. Let's get a quick intro from her and then jump into the conversation. So I'm Renee Cummings. I am an AI ethicist and a data activist. I'm also the historic first data activist in residence at the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia. I'm also a community scholar at Columbia University. My work in AI is at the intersection of justice and artificial intelligence. I look at uh, criminal justice, uh, law enforcement, national security, and any which way an algorithm is deployed and how that algorithm impacts society in a long-term way. So if you're new to Are You a Robot, welcome. This is a series where we aim to explore all of the greatest questions that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and brightest minds in their respective fields. And all of those people who have something to say about this technology that continues to grow in market share, that continues to eat up more and more of our daily lives, sometimes without us even knowing it. And so they come on here and they tell us how they see the space, what they're advocating for in the case of Renee, and how we can move forward with some best practices. I encourage you, if you like anything that you hear, to jump in our Slack community. There you, you will find a plethora of like-minded people that you can relate to and ask questions about, show them what you're working on, ask what others are working on so that we can try and foster a place where this learning happens when it comes to the ethics of AI or anything around data governance, all of this great stuff. We want to make a hub for that so you can jump in it. You can find the link in the description below. And last but not least, I will mention our sponsor for this episode is Ethics Grade. They're an ESG ratings company. For those who do not know what an ESG ratings company is, that's where you study the non-financial impact that a company has on the greater society. So Ethics Grade is studying all of these different companies, but not just what their sustainability impact is or what their environmental impact is. They're studying their AI ethics and their data governance programs. So it's a way that we can see behind the scenes. You can go to ethicsgrade.io and you can check out by downloading one of the scorecards and seeing really peeking behind the curtain and seeing what all of these analysts have gathered all this data and been able to score these different companies such as Toyota or Tesla or Alibaba and Amazon, Twitter, or Facebook, pretty much all the companies that you can think of right now, they have a scorecard and they've been rated. So there are some surprises. I had a few that I did not believe and I had to go double check. I encourage you to go see for yourself where you'll be surprised on which AI ethics programs are being run well and which ones are not being run well, who has the best data governance policies and strategies. So that is ethicsgrade.io. Go and check them out, download the scorecard, have a little bit of fun, play around with it. And now let's jump into this conversation with Renee. Are you a robot? Thank you for coming on and talking with me. It is an absolute pleasure. And you're someone that I've been wanting to talk with 
for quite some time now. I see all of the amazing things that you're doing on LinkedIn. Every time that you pop up on my feed, it is like uh, Christmas come early. And I really appreciate what you were doing. Like you said, you're an activist and the best sense of the word. Maybe we can start for those people who are not familiar with you and what you are doing. Just give us a sense of what exactly that entails. What is your day-to-day? -day? Definitely. So as the uh, data activist in residence, my work is uh, creating a project that can be deployed uh, for the public good. So my work is really within the context of AI for the common good or for the public good. At the moment, I'm working on a piece of technology that empowers uh, members of the community when it comes to really understanding the kind of algorithmic force that is now being deployed against people internationally. So I'm researching uh, technologies, new and emerging technologies, such as facial recognition, other forms of technologies used for mass surveillance, and technologies being employed and deployed by law enforcement internationally as part of their crime prevention and crime control and crime fighting strategies. Uh, as an AI ethicist, I look at ways in which we could enhance ethical resilience and ethical vigilance among developers and designers and data scientists. I focus a lot on issues of accountability and transparency, explainability and, and fairness. And of course, uh, my work in justice uh, brings that Jedi uh, phrenology, which is justice, equity, diversity and inclusion, which is very critical to my work in a very transformative way because due process and duty of care are tenants that I adhere to uh, really uh, solidly. So uh, my, my work and the foundation of my work is just ensuring that uh, technology is deployed in a just way, in a fair way, and that everyone in society gets an opportunity to uh, experience and engage in new and, te and emerging technologies in ways that uh, enhance and heal and not harm or hurt. Mm. So you said something interesting there and talking about society and everyone getting a chance to experience these new technologies. And I wonder how you feel right now when it comes to the current understanding of the greater society about how AI is being deployed? I think uh, the conversation needs to be uh, much broader. Uh, we know that society, when we speak about society, we're speaking also about civil society. And we're even drilling deeper into that and getting that grassroots perspective that is so required. So the voice of the people is really not heard uh, powerfully as yet in uh, this technology. Now, I am really committed to AI. I think it's an extraordinary piece of technology, the power, the potential, and the pervasiveness of this technology to be uh, deployed at scale and at speed is, is really transformative and really could impact society in ways in which we could have never imagined. So as we build our imagination within the context of innovation. We've also got to build our imagination within the context of ethics and justice and equity and inclusion and diversity to ensure the people become the center 
of the design. So for me, it's innovation with intent. It is bringing a human-centered perspective to the ways in which we think about new and emerging technology. So I'm as a psychologist and as, as well as a sociologist, uh, I really uh, adhere to that humanist approach to the ways in which we, we do things. Uh, I am unapologetic, a student of Carl Rogers, uh, who is uh, probably one of the, the greatest fathers of American psychology. And, and I really speak a lot about the importance of empathy and uh, congruence and really having you know, unconditional positive regard to the ways in which we are designing because we are finding too many challenges and crises in the deployment stage. And these crises are linked to the bias and the discrimination and that's baked into our data set. So we've got to really stretch the ethical imagination of AI. And I think I'm here for it. Hmm. You mentioned empathy there, and that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm wondering if you have specific use cases or ways that you've seen empathy being baked in well into AI. I think the conversation has started. We've not really seen it in a technical uh, design. What we are seeing is uh, individuals, designers, developers, data scientists are uh, speaking about design ethics speaking about justice-oriented design and knowing that these uh, philosophies and uh, that create the foundation of, of much of our thinking when it comes to AI and data ethics and digital ethics need to be a part of the design process. But I don't think we are there yet with actual use cases, but I think people are understanding that when we think about something like data and we think about privacy and we think about our relationship with data, we are realizing that data is now our DNA and data could create an extraordinary amount of trauma and an extraordinary amount of pain and even intergenerational trauma. When we think about things like digital redlining or, or credit scores, deny people access and opportunity and resources and the ability to generate and build wealth. And if we are codifying bias and codifying discrimination and codifying systemic racism in the ways in which we are building new and emerging technologies, then what we are really doing is repackaging these old biases and these old hurts and these old inequities into this new technology. And that's what we don't want. So this is why it is so critical for us to have that ethical frame of mind or to bring that level of activism and advocacy and evangelism through data ethics and, and, and data activism. So it really is calling for a conversation with the people, uh, you know, a, a people's conference or a people's forum where the people really start to understand how this technology is impacting their lives beyond the convenience of online shopping and, and Netflix and, and entertainment and, and being connected to friends and family and, and video, you know, all the great things, but to understand that there's got to be some balance because we have seen the kind of psychological trauma, the data can also uh, create, and AI can also create when we think about wrongful arrest by facial recognition, or we think of you being misdiagnosed because uh, the data sets being used in the healthcare system are not diverse enough, you know, so we think about, uh, you know, groups and, and uh, minoritized groups, underserved groups that are really becoming the victims of what is negative about this technology. 
So a lot of times what we do on this podcast, of course, it is a podcast or video cast and we talk. And I sometimes reflect after talking to people and I wonder if all I'm doing is talking. And so I've started asking people, what are some action items that we can take? Like when it comes to global warming, we know it's better to recycle. It's better to take shorter showers. We have some things in our minds, like we want to try and be as electric or ride our bikes. But when it comes to this and being able to take action, what are some items that you would recommend for people that maybe don't know anything about this or people that do and they are like myself who is knee deep in it? I think for people who are involved, I will say raise your consciousness when it comes to the uh, politics and the privilege and the power associated to data and, of course, new and emerging technologies such as AI. I say build that ethical resistance, exist in the ethical moment, understand how history informs our future, and know that those stories from history, those false narratives, many of them, you don't want to code that in new work. I also say to them, be continuously or eternally vigilant and understand that when you design an algorithm, you are designing a tool that is going to inform the legacy of a generation. It is going to impact communities in a different way. And I also say, broaden your worldview, your cosmology, because you do not design in a vacuum. So when you go into that design space, you are coming with a kind of uh, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary uh, exposure that allows you to understand what it means to be empathetic, what it means to walk in the shoes of someone or a community that you are uh, designing a technology for, what it means to be congruent and to be authentic and to be honest and to, to ask those tough questions. And, and don't be afraid uh, about the answers you're going to get and what it means to really engage each other in that highest level of intellectual confrontation at the design table and throughout the life cycle of the design. If you are someone who's using technology, I always say to individuals, you're not a user only of technology. You're not a user. You are also a producer because it is your data. It is your experiences, your emotions, the things that you like and you dislike, the data points that you create, the minute that you wake up and even while you were sleeping because your your technology, your phones, your computers are doing work while you were asleep, right? You've got to understand the power that you hold. So it is so critical for us to, at this moment, to really understand these long-term impacts of data on society, of new and emerging technologies such as AI. And if we want to ensure these technologies mature, we have got to bring the requisite level of emotional intelligence to the design, development, and deployment process of uh, new and emerging technologies. And for those that are like my family members that I just was speaking to a few days ago, and they asked me, what exactly do you do? I don't understand it at all. And I tried to 
tell them how when they use Netflix, they get recommended certain videos because they've done certain things. And I made it very, very simple. And I think they understood a bit. In those circumstances, are there action items that people can take if they're at that level of understanding? Because I... Definitely. Definitely. I think people are realizing it more and more because when we all uh, subscribe to... uh, any form of uh, technological uh, application or, uh, you know, sign on, even to do uh, some of the basic things that we do, our banking, our our health. Uh, There are terms of service, uh, you know, and and disclaimers and and privacy, uh, you know, disclaimers that, that we've got to fill out. And I think most of us just click and click until we get to the end because we just want to use uh, the application. So it's, it's really about having a conversation with them, you know, like if you get a contract and you don't read the fine print, are you going to sign your life away? So it's about you just bringing more due diligence to what you are doing and understanding the ways in which your data could be monetized as well as weaponized against you. And understand that you have rights as you have civil rights and as you have human rights, you have data rights and you have digital rights. And these are critical and understanding how much of your uh, power or your autonomy or your agency you often give up to technology and appreciating that if you do not want to be involved, you should have the right to opt out. So for me, it's really about building a frame of reference within a rights-based approach. And I think people understand that because we all understand that as individuals, as citizens, we have rights. And we understand things like freedom of expression and what it means to be able to have choice and how algorithmic decision-making systems could take that choice away from you or take that level of expression away from you or how something like facial recognition could deny you a basic right, like freedom to assemble in public. So it's really about bringing it down to the things that we understand and we all understand human rights, we all understand civil rights and we all understand what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be an independent thinker and what it means to really chart your own course or be the, you know, the the, the captain of your own destiny. So I think people start to understand when you make it real and you speak about it in in, in a term of reference to the life experiences and our daily lives. Uh, It just makes it much easier. It's interesting you mentioned data rights there and it is much easier to make that bridge between civil rights and then we have these data rights. And I guess there isn't necessarily, like with civil rights, it's almost innate inside of us. And we understand that what are our civil rights and depending on the culture that you grew up in, you have a different understanding of what those are. And when it comes to data rights, I don't know, maybe it's that I haven't seen them is it explicitly said somewhere what our data rights are or what they should be? Well, I think there are many uh, frameworks that have been uh, developed. And of course, uh, each country has uh, regulations when it comes to the ways in which data could be collected and and shared. Um, Of course, the EU has the uh, AI Act. And uh, within the United States, uh, of course, there are many uh, different bodies looking at our rights. Uh, So we do have rights. 
And more and more, we are developing uh, the requisite levels of understanding when it comes to ensuring that data rights uh, are probably uh, codified, like uh, civil rights and, and like human rights. And I think we are moving to that because data rights is definitely the civil rights fight of this generation. And we're going to be seeing more and more of that as algorithmic decision-making systems uh, help us as well as hinder us. Hmm. Data rights is the civil rights fight of this generation. That is a powerful quote. I like that one a lot. So one thing that I've also been pondering quite a bit is the idea that humans are biased. And so holding an algorithm to this standard that it needs to be unbiased, it may be unrealistic or maybe it is an evolution of, of coming out of the human biased. I just really have a hard time grappling with it because then we get into having these algorithms needing to explain themselves, but we don't hold humans to that same ideology, a lot of times we think that, yes, if we were to ask a judge why they gave a certain sentence, they would be able to explain themselves, And but we don't ask them. So I am wondering about your take on certain ways that AI is being deployed and the bias that comes from just human nature and then us holding the algorithms to this higher standard that they need to be unbiased in every way possible, which is also potentially impossible. I think it's not about the algorithm being biased. So although the algorithm is biased, the algorithm does not design itself. Someone is designing the algorithm. So the standard comes to the designer or the developer or the data scientist who needs to have our conscience that we don't even understand why we do the things we do and how we think the way we think and how our thinking informs our behavior. What AI ethics is saying is that individuals who are given the responsibility to work with this technology must have that level of consciousness and that level of introspection to understand their biases and to understand how their biases inform the kind of work that they're doing. data scientists has an extraordinary amount of discretion in the way they use data. So they must understand the historical roots of data. So if you are using criminal justice data in the United States, you must say to yourself somewhere along the design and development value chain, wait a minute, how could this data not be bought? if we have a history of bias in our criminal justice system? How has the criminal justice system historically treated people of color in the U.S.? How has the the criminal justice system treated men of color in the U.S.? And then you go back and back and back and think about how data was first collected. And you've got to deal with several histories. You are dealing with a history of oppression that comes from a history of enslavement. And when you think of, let's say, 
American history and you think of three-fifths law that counted a, a man, a woman, and a child of color in this country as three-fifths of a white man, then you would start to see how our data was being collected or our native peoples were counted among the flora and the fauna. That's how they were counted. Then you start to see how data is collected. When you think of the slave, the slave codes or the, the uh, Jim Crow, you understand that of course the data is not going to be unbiased. So I think what data science has realized is we have many of our data sets that have where we have bias and discrimination baked deeply into them. How do we debias these data sets? Of course, we can come up with technical approaches, but we've also got to deal with the thinking of the people who are creating this technology. So if you have the awareness, and it's like any profession, if you go into psychology and you go into psychology with stereotypes of people of color, or people who use drugs, or what addiction means, or people who may be obese, or uh, you know any particular kind of, of, of group, LGBTQ, if you go into that field with these stereotypes and biases, then you cannot help, that you not, cannot provide an intervention, then you cannot be a conduit. And it's the same thing about data science. If you go into this data science and you are thinking like, what we call the uh, design monoculture. Uh, if you're part of that design monoculture, then you, you, you can't see all of the other things in the world that are so important. So if we want a mature technology, and I think this is what we want from AI, then a mature technology has got to be diverse. It has got to be inclusive. It has got to be equitable. It has got to understand those uh, principles of justice. It has got to understand how do we code something like fairness? What is the mathematical formula for fairness? Think about it. How do we code what it means to be black in America? What it means to be Asian? What it means to be white? How do we code these things? And we have got to start to think about it. So there is no perfect algorithm because there is no perfect human. But what we are saying is if you have that ethical consciousness and if you have that ethical uh, vigilance, then you are going to know what are the right questions to ask, what are the risks attached to the things that you're designing and what are the rights that need to be part of what you are designing. And do you think that there is potential to code or codify things like fairness and like what it means to be white or black or uh, whatever in any country or place? Like these things seem so uh, intangible or so far away from being able to be coded because but they we're are trying to do it. And that's the challenge that we're finding. So in the criminal justice system, when we are designing these risk assessment tools for judges to use or for us to decide on, on public safety or parole or reoffending or, you know, who's a risk and who's not a risk, what are we using to design those risk assessment tools? We are using socioeconomic factors, sociocultural factors, and we are turning uh, what we call criminogenic which are social issues into data points for risk. So your zip code becomes a data point for criminality. Your education becomes a data point for criminality. The uh, types of uh, discrimination 
uh, what I call polyvictimization that you've probably faced as a particular community is now being coded as a data point for risk. And that is what I think the ProPublica investigation in 2016 that looked at machine bias in the criminal justice system realized that you had these two groups um, their rap sheets very similar, but they were getting uh, different risk scores. And of course, for the black and brown defendants, it was these zombie predictions that had them pretty much looking like monsters who are going to be released on society and we've got to deny them that opportunity. And what were we using to come up with those risk scores? We were using socioeconomic and sociocultural data, uh, you know, data points coming from historic data that were biased and discriminatory. And that's the challenge. So when I say, how do we code fairness? Whose definition of fairness are we coding? Whose definition of what it means to be American are we coding? Yeah, exactly. And what exactly does it mean? Right. So whose definition, who's, how are we deciding what it means and how do we come to that consensus? Uh, these are fascinating points. Now, when you talk about the criminal justice system and you talk about how these ways of AI are being deployed, it feels like to me, when I hear about this, it's like, we were we're we do it we put something into production we start using it and then we realize how messed up it is do you feel like we can maybe start to have some kind of checkpoints that need to go into place before we can put something into production and so we won't have these mistakes further on downstream I think we can, and it's really what AI ethics and, and data activism is about. It's about understanding that the designers, the developers, the data scientists need to be part of an interdisciplinary team that understands the culture that you are designing for. And that is why uh, empathy is so critical. And that is why unconditional positive regard. And that is why we must have a, a people-centered approach to the design. So if we have those interdisciplinary teams, it means that now we can check diversity, equity, inclusion, ensure duty of care is in there, ensure due process is not being undermined. These are very important. But when our designers or developers or data scientists don't have that heightened consciousness or don't have that level of, of ethical vigilance, then they are designing without an understanding of the broader issues that are affecting uh, these groups and communities and without the experiences of those communities. So this this is why it is so critical at that initial stage to have those interdisciplinary teams to understand uh, what a rights-based and risk-based approach needs to look like and to really get the individuals you are designing for involved in the design process. And this is why multi-stakeholderism is so critical 
to the maturity of artificial intelligence or any new and emerging technology because you want to have the voice of the people involved in the conversation. So this is what we're saying. You've got to have an approach that is eclectic, that is, uh, you know, really dynamic, and that is very flexible when it comes to understanding. Because the challenge with AI is it is an opaque technology. And what is being demanded of AI is accountability and transparency. So how do you reconcile uh, accountability and transparency and explainability with opacity? Because I think what we are asking for is technology that is principled, that is responsible, AI that we can trust. And how could we trust something that we don't understand? How can we trust something that's making high stakes decision with biased data? How could we trust something that's being designed by a, you know, a group that doesn't have that broad understanding? So what it's really calling for is that we need to mix things up. We need to get honest. We need not be afraid of diversity and inclusion. Well, I'm completely on board with that. And I'm wondering how that actually plays out in the workplace or in these different situations that AI is being designed, do you just hire people that are diverse? And even if they don't have particular skills for designing AI, they can ask the right questions and they only come in every once in a while and you have a round table discussion or do you have user group uh, studies? Like what are the ways that we can actually do this I think we could do it in so many creative ways. At the end of the day, there are many data scientists who come from diverse backgrounds. So I don't think we have a def deficit of, of, of talent in that department. I think it's up to organizations to embrace an ethical organizational culture and to be bold enough to say that we want to change things up. We want to ensure that we have that right mix in this space and we're not afraid of, of what that diversity is going to look like and feel like and sound like. Uh, that's the challenge there. And to that team, you can add that level of multi-stakeholderism where you have uh, community groups and grassroots groups and civil society as, as part of the sounding board process. Um, not, not saying, you know, to bring just go out on the street and bring everybody you see into your design lab or into your boardroom. But what we're saying is have the consciousness and have the understanding and have the emotional intelligence to know what you need and to look at your group and ensure that in the group that you are looking at, you have everything that you need. Because what happens is when you deploy this technology and it does not have the impact that you are expecting, then you could be faced with the financial uh, challenges, the reputational risk, uh, regulators probably breeding down your back, or you could become, you know, the, the content for the next big media expose or the next big uh, legal uh, a case. What we're saying is that the talent is there. The talent is there. There are diverse groups involved in this technology organizations have just got to do what is right and understand if it's AI for all of us, then it needs to be designed by all of us. Hmm. So let's jump into policing 
now and how AI is being used within that area. Uh, because this is one thing that for me being in Europe, I don't feel like it is being as uh, used and abused, we could say, as in the US. And in the US, I know there are many different applications for AI, some that we've already talked about here, but others that we haven't touched on. What are some ways that AI is being deployed right now in the police on the police force? Well, uh, predictive analytics has been a part of policing for some time now. Of course, it is becoming more and more sophisticated and, and very savvy as we become experts in the realm of uh, algorithms. Uh, what we are seeing would be algorithms being deployed in ways in which we would have put uh, police officers in the past. So you can have an algorithm as uh, an undercover officer. You can have an algorithm working as a detective. You can have an algorithm working as an informant, also in a particular community. What we are seeing would be a heavy increase in the amount of algorithmic force that's being deployed on the streets, given the many partnerships between police agencies and vendors who are coming up with technologies every day as part of your crime fighting strategy or the ways in which you want to uh, deploy this technology. What we are seeing would be uh, maybe these vendors uh, pushing the envelope because much of the uh, partnerships are not made public. So uh, it's really not being ventilated and having that requisite level of public oversight. So we know that the police are using, uh, you know, body-worn cameras, drones, uh, license plate readers, uh, using uh, what we would call the geofencing uh, warrant or your digital subpoenas. All of these are critical to the ways in which we are policing at this moment. Uh, we can also say that uh, when it comes to predictive analytics or when it comes to the use of, of algorithms, uh, it could be working in ways to uh, reimagine policing as well, where we can uh, design much sharper early warning systems to uh, really uh, highlight those officers who have a propensity or proclivity uh, for violence or who have issues with discipline. So it's a great way to flag an officer and create an intervention for that officer to ensure that officer is not, uh, you know, is not uh, a problem to him or her or their selves and to ensure that officers taken off the street and really gets the kind of treatment uh, they need. So we could use it in that positive way. Of course, we are compiling data in ways that are so fast and so sophisticated now. So our old approach to hotspot policing, what we call cops and dots, uh, could become a little more savvy. The challenge is police data, again, historical data. Historical data plagued again with bias and discrimination. So what we're finding with uh, much of the data that's being used in policing uh, to fight crime and to enhance public safety are really creating scenarios where police officers are over-policing the communities they already over-police. So we're not seeing these algorithms uh, saying, this is where you're going to find white-collar crime or crime in the Swedes or uh, corruption. But we're seeing these old traditional approaches to street crime. So we're putting those algorithms at the street corners. We're putting those algorithms in, in, in public housing, places that have already been over-policed. The other good thing about algorithms and policing, it's a 
another way where the communities and the people could use these algorithms to uh, police the police. So uh, there's much activity when it comes to new and emerging technologies in the realm of policing. But what we've got to look at would be questions of public trust, public confidence, whether or not algorithms are uh, enhancing public trust and enhancing public confidence, or if they are not. And what we are seeing is that they are probably not. And it comes back to police legitimacy, and it also comes back to police discretion, where the police have an extraordinary amount of discretion they could use. And what we don't want to see being created with algorithms is what I call the digital chokehold, uh, because that is not seen, but it is felt, and it could be more deadly and more painful and more traumatic on our underserved and high needs communities than a physical chokehold from the police. Hmm. So I think it would be good if you can talk to me about how you, so you mentioned this idea of traditional policing is just becoming more predominant and the algorithms are recommending that you police heavier in, uh, in certain areas because of the biased data. And it might be nice if you can explain what exactly that means. So it means that, when we think of our criminal justice system and we think of the access to data that we're using, we're using historic data and historic data has a memory and has a narrative and it tells a story. It tells a story that people of color are more criminal. And it, it tells that story because the police have always policed communities of color. So they build their data in those communities. The, is the data accurate? No, it's not. Are people of color more criminal than any other group? No, they are not. But if you put police in a particular community, what are they going to get? They're going to get the statistics that say that this community is the community where crime is happening or this intersection or this street corner or these coordinates on our grid are showing us because why? We've been using that data to design strategies for those communities. And of course, if we're using data from a criminal justice system that has been not uh, seen to be equitable to people of color, then we already know what we are starting with. And, and that's just it. So if we keep building applications to be deployed on these same data sets, we're not going to get a fair and equitable approach to the ways in which we police. So we're not changing the data. So we're using the old data to come up with new technology that's just saying to us the same place, you know, is, is what we are seeing the same communities. And we're not really reimagining the ways in which we could use these technologies. Yeah, exactly. It's like confirmation bias. And you're thinking, okay, well, uh, we have all of this data that says a certain thing. And so we need to police uh, this area harder. And it only creates more data, which says this is a dangerous area. And so one thing that I also am very interested about, since we spoke earlier about data rights and civil rights and your human rights. When it comes to the police and the government being able to collect all of this data on us, 
is that not a violation of these data rights that we were speaking of? And I remember when I was young, I grew up in the US and we used to tell all of our friends there was like the the running thing was if you say certain words on the phone, on your cell phone, then your phone will automatically get picked up and it will be tapped and people will be listening. So don't say certain words. And then when I moved to Spain and I told someone that, they thought I was absolutely crazy. They thought, why would anyone want to listen to your conversations? Nobody in Spain's going to do that. And so whether or not they do or in Spain, I have no idea. But I believe in the US when all of the Snowden stuff came out, they found out that, yeah, there was actually AI being used and it could aggregate if certain words were being said, it could decide on that. I don't know enough to talk about it right now, but I do wonder about this idea of the legalities on how our data is being used and then how it's being used to train certain algorithms. So that's the challenge because I don't think any of us actually know how and to what extent and the depth to which our data is being used and how it's being used to train algorithms or how it's being monetized or how it's being weaponized against us. And that is what we are now trying to find out through data protection and data governance and data stewardship and data activism because we don't know. And that's the thing about new and emerging technologies in particular AI. There is so much that we do not know about the power and potential of these technologies. But what we do know is that the law it always lags behind technology. And in that space where the law is in front, uh, the space where the technology is in front and the law is behind is the big loophole where so much that we know, we do not know is being conducted. So the challenge is this, we all know more legislation is required we all know we need that robust and rigorous uh, regulatory guardrail required to ensure that this technologies, these technologies are designed to protect. But what we don't know is when we're going to get that level of robustness because of the codependence and the relationships between big tech and of course government. The other thing that we don't know when it comes back to this technology and what the designers and the developers and the data scientists often don't know is how does the technology do the things that it, it, it's doing when we think about deep learning or quantum computing. There's so much that we do. Uh, we feed all this uh, information, but do we really know? And, and that's the whole uh, paradox about explainability within the context of an opaque technology. So the ch challenge is things are happening. The other challenge is we don't know to what extent. And then the greater challenge is how do we push back against what is happening and who are going to be the ones who protect our digital rights. And this is why data activism is so critical. And this is why the voice of the people need to be amplified and heard. And this is why we need to make those diverse groups and communities more visible to ensure that the long-term impacts of, you know, of, of, of techno-social uh, approaches 
are not harmful. Yeah. I think you put it perfectly there that we don't know how it's being used and who is going to make sure that we are protected? Who is going to make sure that there is transparency? So that's why this activism is so important and it has its place. And it is the, uh, forgive me if I misquote you, but it was what the civil civil rights activism of our time, digital rights activism is what? That's fine. That's fine. It's (laughs) going to be, yes, it's going to be the civil rights fight. That's it. Of this generation, I believe. Yeah, it is fascinating. And so I wonder, and you may have to be patient with me on how I articulate this question, but it is been going around in my head as I'm listening to you. And there are all of these ways that we have seen algorithms being deployed for or in a biased way and not for the best use. And there's a lot of what you've been speaking about is how algorithms have been super biased towards minorities whether that is in the criminal justice system or with policing. And like you mentioned, it's using zip codes to be, to use that as a data point. And that is a negative data point, depending on where you're coming from. And I guess my main thing that I'm wondering is, are we not, is this not a surface level thing that we're trying to do by fixing these algorithms that are being deployed improperly? Should we not try to go a level deeper and fix the underlying problem, which is the different areas that are dangerous or are being over-policed because of tension or violence? Is there not a way or a better way for us to try and deploy AI for good in these areas and be activists for that so that the, these areas can benefit, as you mentioned, there is that equity and these areas can benefit from AI in a positive sense, as opposed to looking at it like, uh, like all of the negative ways that AI is oppressing, not to say that one can't be done without the other, Obviously, we should be doing both, but I really am wondering if we go a level deeper and uh, like I think about the idea of all of this data that has been training these algorithms and it makes the case for minorities being so much more likely to reoffend. Well, isn't the problem there if we go deeper that we are putting too many minorities in jail. Like the problem is not that it's the algorithm being deployed. I mean, it is a problem there, I guess. uh, (laughs) I told you, you got to be patient with me for this question, but I think you, you understand what uh, the point I'm trying to make. And, and so trying to go a few levels deeper there and really find the root of the problem as opposed to this surface level, or not as opposed to, but just in parallel to. 
Well, listen, it's an excellent question, and I totally understand where you're coming from. Let me just press, preface it with this. When it comes to uh, the ways in which we're seeing bias and discrimination, it's beyond the criminal justice system. We're seeing it in healthcare. We're seeing it in finance. We're seeing it in hiring. We're seeing it in just every which way algorithms are being deployed. And this is why we need to bring uh, that uh, really robust level of due diligence. And when I speak about uh, this eternal vigilance, ethical vigilance that's required, these things are critical for understand why an ethical approach to designing uh, technology is so important and to deploying technology is so important. The question that you ask speaks about techno-solutionism as the answer or not the answer. We've got to pull back and say, not everything needs an algorithm. Some things just need a human. Some things just need human intervention and that empathetic understanding of these communities and the kind of money that we can be using to create facial recognition technology and drones and, and body cameras and algorithmic police and uh, uh, deploying all these algorithms on the street exactly. is the kind of money we can invest in communities and uh, really develop communities and bring more resources to these communities and ensure that we uh, change the trajectories of, of the lives of individuals in many of our high needs and underserved communities. So we've got to realize that technology is great. Technology is amazing. I am very passionate about AI, but I'm also passionate about justice and about equity and about diversity and inclusion. And I'm also passionate about understanding that techno-solutionism is not the only answer. And we cannot get caught up into that technological mindset that makes us stop thinking. And one of the things that I always say is we don't ever want to get to the point where we need to design an algorithm to teach us how to be human again. Mm. So how do we make the case for that divert funds from this crazy new bleeding edge technology into something that is as traditional and as uh, as old as the cavemen well let's call ai for the, the common good or ai for the social good or ai for uh public good whereas we can take that money and give it to those communities and let them design AI solutions that they need, AI solutions to probably make communities more cohesive and to build that level of, of social resilience in communities or to really educate communities about developing themselves and about ways in which communities can enhance experiences for young people, maybe after school programs, maybe mental health programs, maybe programs to reduce uh, inter, uh, you know, intimate partner violence and then programs to reduce homicide and programs to build, you know, the confidence and, and to, to, to just show young people that there are great possibilities in this world and there are extraordinary possibilities for them to become data scientists and developers and to own their own startups and to, to, to come up with the kinds of solutions that their communities need. So just take some of that funding and put it into those communities and let them know that they could be the astronauts and they could, you know, do all the great things that they can do. It's just a, a change in mindset and just a pivot in perspective and we can get things right. Excellent. Renee, I've got one last question for you, and I appreciate this conversation so much. I appreciate your viewpoint and the activism that you're doing. As I mentioned, 
I love whenever something pops up on LinkedIn. If anyone out there is not following Renee on LinkedIn, definitely go give her a follow because it is always a pleasure to see what you're doing and how you are articulating yourself and your what you're fighting for, this cause that you're fighting for. Last question for you is, are you a robot? Am I a robot? I may not be a robot, but trust me, I'd love to see a robot that represents and looks like me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Renee. And thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. This has been great. This has been really, really an amazing chat. And for you out there listening, I appreciate you taking the time. If you enjoyed the session, please give us a like or write us on LinkedIn, whatever you feel. Jump into our community that we have. There's all kinds of ways to get involved. And as Renee mentioned earlier, we've got some action items that we can now take if you would like to also become a, an activist and fight for our data rights. So that's all we've got today. Thanks again, Renee. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Have a great day, okay? Bye.